0: Welcome to The Great Exposure, where we connect with community members to discuss how society's disregard for Indigenous people, people of color, and women has disproportionately affected their communities during the pandemic. We will not be silenced. Hey, he's Justin.
1: And she's Katie. In this episode of The Great Exposure, we will be talking about racial disparities. We know that there were systematic issues before this past year, but they were further exposed by the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic.
0: This pandemic has affected us all, but it has affected some groups more severely than others.
1: The data shows that minorities in America are more likely to contract COVID, and those who do are more likely to have severe symptoms and negative outcomes than whites.
0: Whites make up 60% of the American population, but only 50% of COVID-19 cases.
1: There are many possible reasons why racial and ethnic minorities are at greater risk, from exposure from housing and occupational disparities to disparities in testing availability.
0: Now that vaccines are being distributed widely, the data shows that in Minnesota, whites are being vaccinated at a higher rate than all other minorities. Nearly one-third of whites have completed their vaccination, but only one-fifth of Blacks in Minnesota have completed their vaccination.
1: Infections and vaccinations tell only part of the story when it comes to this pandemic. Many people faced economic hardships from job losses or hours cut. This is another area where minorities face disparities.
0: Between February and April of last year, Black workers saw losses of employment of nearly 18% compared to 15.5% for white workers.
1: It is important to know these facts and statistics, but they don't tell the whole story. What is the experience of Black and brown people living during this pandemic?
0: As white people, we do not have the lived experience. Justin and I cannot speak to what it is like to live with systemic oppression due to race or ethnicity.
1: Systemic oppression or racism is defined as systems and structures that have procedures or processes that disadvantage people of color, as defined by Derek Johnson, the president of the NAACP.
0: In order to understand these issues better, we conducted two interviews. The first one was with Anissa Omar.
1: is an awesome person who has already done a ton to help her community, but I'll let her tell you herself.
2: A little bit about myself. I was actually born and raised here in Maine Cato. I went through the Maine Cato public school system and also attended MSU to receive my undergraduate degree. I am the daughter of two Somali immigrants, the first of my family to actually be born here in America. I've just received my undergraduate degree in December, I'm currently studying for the LSAT. And so that's kind of keeping me busy, but I also organize with a lot of committees and organizations here in the
0: area, as well as in the Twin Cities area. Is there any specific organizations that you work for?
2: Yeah, I think I'm (laughs) involved with quite a few organizations. I'm an organizer with Ignite the Youth, an organizer with a former organization we kind of took hiatus called Mankato Aya Voices for Racial Equity. I'm a board member with the YWCA Mankato. I'm a fellow currently with the Muslim Public Affairs Council. And I'm also a young woman's cabinet member with the governor's office and the Women's Foundation.
1: What kind of work have you done with communities of color?
2: Most of my organizing work with communities of color are more so providing needs, whether it be food resources, access to funds. Um, I was also the former student body president where I was able to work with students of color as well as international students. And in that role, I was able to pass legislation and work on legislation that would provide international students with the ability to access emergency grant funds, discuss food, lack of food access. Our Senate actually passed the Swipe Out Hunger Resolution, which is now enacted on our university where students can donate meal swipes to other students through an app anonymously um, for food. students who are food insecure. And then within the community, I organized with high school students, middle school students, in removing police from our area public schools.
0: Can you tell us about your personal COVID experience?
2: Yeah. My father had COVID first, and then my sister got it. And so I was caretaking, assisting my other sister, caretaking for them. And they were kind of nearing their end of the 14 days. I think they were on like day... 11 or 12, and on August 8th, that's when I received it, right when they were coming off of theirs. And yeah, I don't know, my experience, I think it was horrible just having to go through that. I had a lot of respiratory issues, like it was difficult for me to breathe. I had to quarantine longer. I had to do like 20 days. And so school just started when I was still isolating myself and still dealing with COVID. I was being followed closely, through mail, like they sent this device, I would have to consistently check my um, O2, my temp, and so forth.
1: As an activist, do you think the pandemic helped with the protests last summer in the response to George Floyd's death?
2: Yeah, as an organizer, I definitely think it had an impact because people were home and they haven't, like we were kind of quarantining, we were staying home, we weren't socializing, and... Also, I think it was like a buildup. It was race relations with Black individuals and police, lack of support from our government to communities of color who did not have food resources or their food Like the food bank lines are very long um, access to food or transportation. And then we got like, what, one stimulus or like, and then like 600 unemployment for a while. And then that was cut off. So I think all of those issues are compounded together. And I think that's what made, this, like the protest, such a big thing. It was so many issues stacked upon it. And black individuals are more susceptible to all of those economically, police, violence, and so forth. Like we, as Ian Presley says, like we're closest to the pain. And so we showed out in numbers as well throughout that time. And I think that was definitely a factor.
0: What are the challenges your community faces with respect to the COVID pandemic?
2: There's a lot of challenges because I'm like a black Muslim woman. And so I know a lot of my mom's friends and so forth who were no longer working because of the pandemic or were laid off because of the pandemic. And so that impacted them financially as well as like, they didn't have access to food anymore because their finances were there, they were behind in rent and so forth. And then now with the vaccine, a lot of like the mistrust is there, but I also think there's so many individuals within our community as Black Muslim women who want access to the vaccine and don't have it. I think accessibility has been a huge barrier in this pandemic. And accessibility prior to the pandemic was a big issue, but I think the pandemic exasperated it.
0: How has your community dealt with the increase in food insecurity? I know there's a lot of programs
2: here. I think it would more more so mutual aid. Like I would see my mom start taking stuff over to her friends or like we have Extra rice and like packaging that up and donating it. Like there's a lot of mutual aid within my community. And I also know there's also a few nonprofits that were established or a few smaller restaurants who are also handing out food to individuals who needed it. And we were also kind of before the pandemic, like we're big on mutual aid, like, oh, go over there, grab some sugar, go over here, grab some sugar. And so we already had that connection within my community. And so we relied heavily upon that
1: you previously worked with student groups at East High School here in Mankato. Did the school district properly support students when they moved to distance learning? Did they ensure that students had proper resources to succeed?
2: I also worked with students all across the district, Dakota Meadows, Mankato West, Mankato East, and Perry Winds, and I think their response was inadequate. Like there's so many students falling behind. I don't think they properly addressed, like I remember I have Cousins currently in the school system, and whenever they were having issues with, like, the tech, it was like, oh, well, just call this number. And that number wasn't very, assist, like, didn't assist them much. Also, when the protests happened, there wasn't an access to, like, counselors or stuff like that or, like, social workers reaching out to students of color. Because I remember specifically asking on the phone and everything was popping off, what support is happening right now for students of color? Like, how are you guys checking in with them? And to me, they basically said they were had limited resources and they weren't checking in right now. Yeah, I don't think they've responded adequately. And right now it's like a COVID hotspot, kind of. Like we have so many students out on quarantine. And the reason we're asking for police to be removed, it was like we're in a pandemic. We're already on a budget deficit. Students need support and police cannot provide the support that the students need. And so that was one of our main demands. Like We need to reinvest those dollars because we're already going to be losing a lot. And right now they're planning on cutting a lot of staff positions, as we predicted when we were organizing. And so it was, it just showed us who they're invested in. And then the way in which right after our organizing efforts, when they came to a vote and they voted on it a few weeks after white parents came together demanding the school reopen and they acted immediately to ensure the school was reopened for white parents. And now we have a lot of students out on quarantine and they didn't even ensure teachers had all of their vaccines before placing them back in those buildings with those students and so I think the way in which the school district responded is completely inadequate, but I also don't expect much from an all-white cabinet, except for now there's one Black individual on the cabinet making rules, and most of them are white men. They don't experience what we experience.
1: What would you have liked to see the school district do instead, or what kind of steps would you have liked them to take?
2: Yeah, we had a few alternatives that we demanded and one it was get more counselors into those buildings and we are at a counselor shortage but if the funds are using for police they can also hire out partner with therapists and stuff like that in our community and bring them into our schools and that's what we were asking for because we have kennedy and a few other elementary schools are currently sharing one counselor my cousin, basically, who goes to Kennedy was like, well, we have to choose when we want to have our problems because she's only here Monday, Wednesday and Friday. And oh I'm like, God. if a fourth grader is telling you that, that's an issue. Another thing was restorative justice. Like we don't need police standing there with their badge and their gun just intimidating Black and brown students, as well as administrators utilizing police against Black and brown students to charge them. And how can we implement restorative practices? Because right now they say they're doing restorative practice. But it's just throwing a circle on it is what their restorative is. Oh, let's all sit in a circle and let's all do this. And that's not true restorative justice, nor is it true restorative practices. And then we also said after school programming for Black and brown youth. When we were organizing with Black and brown youth, there was not a space for them at that school prior that was not dominated by whiteness. And I think it's very important growing up in the school system, you need your community, you need other black and brown students alongside you because this can feel very isolating. Meditation space or prayer space. I remember in high school, you used to have to pray between bookshelves. And so how can we provide students with the space they need to meditate, to pray, to do whatever they want, to rest if they need to. And so that, those are a few of the things. And the last one was mentorship, especially for Black and brown youth. How can we connect them to students at MSU or in the community to help lead them and guide them? Because I know as a student, I didn't have that guidance. And I'm very grateful for where I'm at and the community that held me up because this it's like the same school system that I was continuously suspended on. And it was really my community made sure I made it completely through that school without falling through the cracks.
0: Has the vaccine been available to your community at a reasonable rate? No, I don't think
2: it's been accessible for Black and brown communities. Yeah, I haven't seen it be as accessible. I know my sister's still waiting to get hers. My mother still hasn't gotten hers and so forth. And I don't think it's accessible for Black and brown communities. And I also know that they're they're saying, oh, it's the mistrust. But I've spoken to so many Black and brown individuals who want access to it and cannot get it. And so I think we need to stop caping behind or hiding behind the whole, oh, Black, Black individuals are afraid of the vaccine and actually allow Black and brown individuals to decide that and make it accessible for them.
1: Do you think it's a problem about messaging, about telling communities where they can get it? Or is it more of it really not being available to the community?
2: Yeah, um, I know when I was doing the connector thing uh, with the Minnesota Gov or whatever that website is. It took me about like five minutes or so to fill out that entire questionnaire. And they do have different languages, but I don't think it's expensive. And also you have to search up that website to get that phone number. And Mm -hmm. so that's what I mean with accessibility. And I also like they text you oh, or email you, you're available for an appointment. Not a lot of Somali individuals have emails, especially the older individuals. And so it's that disconnect with the accessibility that is my main concern. And I also think it's in areas where it's difficult for them to reach. Or if I live in Minneapolis and it's like all booked up or I have to drive, I have to drive an hour and a half away to get mine. Cause I really wanted to get mine and it was available. So it's like not all individuals have access to a car to drive that. And the ones maybe near them is already filling up, especially if it's a place like Minneapolis and St. Paul. Mm-hmm.
0: Have you noticed an increase in racism since the pandemic has started
2: With all of my intersecting identities, I'm already traveling through a lot of racism. So it's like it doesn't stick out like this is more than usual, but I'm sure Mm -hmm. it may be for other individuals. I didn't notice it right away. What I would say, though, is with stores and stuff like that, the criminalization that happens with the pandemic I remember when the Mankato City Council was passing the mask mandate and I was like, why do we have to have punitive measures like, oh, it's going to be a ticket of this for individuals who really may not have access to a mask? or may not understand the mask mandate, or know that there's a mask mandate. And I think that's where racism can show, like if you're entering a store and you don't know there's a mask mandate, the way in which that can roll out, or if you're at a restaurant, I think that makes you more susceptible to experience racism more than usual. But I would say that's also the responsibility of the Mankato City Council to make sure that it's not punitive, and they
1: didn't do so. So I
2: I would be curious to see how many citations they gave out, if
1: any, yeah. How has the work that you do been changed since the pandemic started? What kind of things have changed with your outreach?
2: Well, I was serving as student body president when the pandemic hit and it shut down the campus, and so I was like, Organizing then to ensure students have pay if they're working on campus and so forth, and housing and food access. And so I was doing that work. And then I shifted more towards the school work right when I finished up my term. I think it shed more focus on it. Like I remember talking to administrators who were just flabbergasted when I said, Yeah, campus is shut down, but students still need to receive their pay. And they're like, What is that? And so I had to like, organize and ensure that they were able to receive pay. I remember with the emergency grant, when we brought it up in the beginning of the school year, pre-pandemic, the cabinet um, and administrators looked at us like, what do you mean you want us to include graduate students and international students? Like that's not going to happen. And right when the pandemic hit, we were able to get them to establish an emergency grant program for international students to access. And so I think we were able to get a lot of the resolutions and legislation we passed accomplished right when the pandemic hit, because we we're like, this is what students need, and we need to ensure that they have access to it. So I think the pandemic was able, allowed me to put pressure on administrators.
1: Is there anything else you'd like to add?
2: The one thing I would add for the individuals in the class is encouraging them to establish a mutual aid network. And encouraging them to organize with community organizations in the area, if able to provide the utmost support to communities of color, especially black and brown women and non-binary folks and transgender folks during this time. And so that was just establish a mutual aid network if you don't have one within your course or find a way in which you guys can connect and give back if you're able to, and if not financially, with your time.
1: What can our listeners do to support your community?
2: I would say cash app. Like instead of donating to big orgs, donate directly to individuals who need it. Because I do think we get lost into, oh, I donated to like a nonprofit organization, but sometimes that money doesn't go directly to the individuals that need it right away.
0: I was surprised to find out that the Mankato School District is not very accommodating to students of color, especially since they're such a diverse population.
1: The part that hit me was the school seems to have a budget to keep police in the school, but they aren't able to expand their counseling.
0: The Free Press also recently published an article saying that the district needs to cut $7.5 million for their budget, which includes 100 staff. Resource officers were not listed, but teachers, pairs, and counselors were.
1: One thing I was impressed with is the amount of mutual aid Anissa talked about. It's really awesome that people are out there supporting each other in these hard times.
0: Some people might not know what mutual aid is. What does that mean?
1: I understand mutual aid as people taking direct action to help their community members out, whether that's helping people with finding food, financial help, or even just giving people rides when they need it.
0: Yeah, I understand it as helping your neighbor.
1: All right. Our second interview was with Paku Lee.
0: She gave us a good insight into the Hmong experience and because of her role in the Asian American Affairs Office at MSU, she has a unique insight into overlapping experiences.
3: My name is Paku Lee, and I am Hmong. That's my ethnicity. So we are a ethnic minority in China, Southeast Asia. My parents actually came from Laos right after the Vietnam War. Me and all my siblings, we're, we were born here in Minnesota, first-generation college student. Yeah, born and raised in Minnesota. My undergrad here at MSU, studying anthropology and ethnic studies. And I'm completing my grad program in counseling, student personnel, college student affairs. And this is my third year working at the institution going second year in my role as the Director of Asian American and Multicultural Affairs.
1: What kind of work have you done with Communities of Color?
0: Well,
3: we work specifically in recruiting and um, the retention of our students of color. So most of my work is with college students and um, high school students, junior high students. For the recruitment piece, working with middle school, junior high, and high school students, we make sure that college is accessible to them. So pre-COVID, that meant bringing in these communities to campus, providing the transportation, because that can be just a barrier in itself. And just talking about higher ed, getting them to envision themselves pursuing higher ed to help with their future. In terms of the retention piece, we work with our students who are here, and whether that be through community engagement, student involvement. I personally oversee five student organizations so I work a lot with our student organizations and student leaders to be active on campus, to showcase their culture or their RSL mission. On top of that, I also do advising to all of our students. So at least in, in the Multicultural Center here, we, we usually fo- focus on our diverse student populations, but we also are advising any student that comes through our doors. Programming, that's another big part of our area in the Multicultural Center whether that's collaborating with our student organizations and doing the cultural events or the programming, focusing on diversity, inclusion, equity, training workshops. Those are all kind of the things that, that we do here.
0: Can you tell us about your personal experience
3: of COVID? It feels so long ago, but it's still so, so vivid. I'm sure that's the same for everyone. But I remember my sister had gotten the fluke right at that time and so just having the experience of going to the hospital and them asking have you been out of the country you know that in itself i i think can become a microaggression considering that i'm of Asian descent and one of the biggest stereotypes or the the biggest forms of of, of prejudice and bias that we receive is that we're the forever foreigner that we're always from somewhere else and so that at the beginning was Like, oh, okay, this is practical. I just have to let them know so that I haven't been out of the country. But yeah, just her being sick and then getting, I think I got a cold right afterward. And I was also terrified. Not much was known about COVID at that time. And this was early March last year. So just a lot of uncertainty. And so being an hour and a half away from family and not being sure if they're okay. But once we went virtual, then it, we went to, oh, I need to go get groceries. I need to stock up. Just being Asian, going to the store, wearing a mask before the mask mandate. I was pretty terrified of how people would perceive me. And, you know, and that's with my role, with my background and knowing, you know, the stereotypes and the, the prejudices and, and racism and everything and, and still being afraid because you know, your safety could be at risk. I've usually felt safe in Mankato, and I'm from the Twin Cities, I grew up in St. Paul. That was, I think, some very different times, and I, I saw sure. Mankato differently than I have. And again, I did my undergrad here, so I've been here for a couple of years. But yeah, those were the first couple of months. And then I think the summer, until now, I, I think it's it's been a little bit better. But yeah, initial experiences, those first couple of weeks to, to months.
1: What are the challenges you've seen in the Asian-American communities or communities of color face with respect to COVID?
3: Well, definitely for the Asian community, especially if you look East Asian. And that in itself is also another issue because when folks think of Asia, they think normally of East Asia. And that also excludes all of our other people and cultures that make up Asia. Asia is the largest continent in the world. And so it is very sad that, that it's a portion of our group of people that are being targeted, but in itself, it excludes the people who have traditionally been excluded from the Asian identity. And so that's another deeper issue. But I would say it, it, it's been very disheartening, very sad to see the elder community being targeted, if you've seen, you know, in the Chinatowns or in in the areas in California, New York, and definitely the case in in Georgia, so anyone looking of East Asian descent has seen the rise in hate crimes, the rise in violence against their perceived identities, and also, you know, we're we're going up to the one year mark of George Floyd getting killed in Minneapolis, and during that time, the peak of the pandemic and What that has left a mark in our history as Minnesotans, as well as people of color, as well as just people of Minnesota. And so we're going to the one year mark of of all of these. And right now, within my role, just tuning in with our students and what they're experiencing, as well as our Asian students, as as our Black students, and and anyone who who is also understanding of the systems that, that we live in and the society that that we live in, that has shaped a lot of, of people's beliefs and views against each other.
1: How have the students dealt with the George Floyd murder? Have you noticed them being active in social justice? Or can you speak to that a little bit more?
3: Yeah, I can speak to that. We had an alum that graduated last spring. They were very active in our Mankato local community in holding, I believe, on, on the bridge in North Mankato, just having the demonstrations and, and that was with, with the Mankato area. And so I've seen a lot of student activism that way through social media as well, because your, your solidarity doesn't have to be, you know, in person, especially during this, this pandemic. And I think one other thing, you know, we just held our demonstration last Tuesday, and that was largely with our student leaders in, in Asian American affairs, is a lot of them felt that they couldn't, be active before and I think you know the first worry is just your personal safety whether that be from other people or from from COVID-19 and so there has been a rise in awareness I would say and social justice activism in multiple forms yes.
1: You mentioned wearing a mask earlier how did you or people you know feel about the mask mandate and and the reaction to it?
3: You know in Asia wearing a mask is is pretty normal. If you're looking at China or or most of East Asia, where they've got the the fine dust seasons or just the collectivistic society mindset of if I'm sick, I'm going to protect myself or protect you from from me and wear a mask. So in a lot of our cultures, it's been normal, especially in those home countries. Whereas in the US, I I mean, I never wear a mask before, even though I knew that in Asia, they would normalize it. And so I think especially with our international students who are coming from these countries, that was normal for them. But it was hard to kind of not want to feel targeted because I'm not wearing a mask because I'm sick. I'm wearing a mask because I want to protect us. But I I think with time, we've definitely normalized that, at least for the most part. You know, there are are folks who, who don't want to wear masks and kind of to each their own. But if most of us wear it and understand just a communal effort to keep everyone safe. And um, I, I think it's been good so far, yeah.
0: In your community, have students received enough support from their school, MSU, or you mentioned you work with other students?
3: You know, we try. We work closely with the counseling office to ensure that we have support for our students. And I know that there's only 10 sessions that you can receive in a year. And so we're constantly looking at resources in the community that can help students. And we as an office, we're always making sure that we're meeting the students where they're at and whatever they need, we can, even though we, we don't have that resource as a campus, we can find it elsewhere. And then afterward work to have that as something that our campus can provide for our students. And so sometimes, you know, we're in the reactive side of things because although we want to know that we have everything, we also know and acknowledge that we don't. Sometimes we're proactive on things because we've seen how other institutions have done it or what's happened elsewhere and we can prevent it here, uh, where sometimes we're reactive because we just didn't know at that time.
1: Before the pandemic, you worked with high school students to get them into the college and has that work shifted to a different kind of outreach or is there other steps that you can do? Or...
3: Everything has been virtual because we're used to holding big events or, or hosting large amounts of, of students to come to campus. But uh, yeah, everything has been virtual. All of our college visits are virtual. We also have camps throughout the summer. Yeah, it's been it's been weird that at first uh, last summer to hold a camp virtually with 40 or so high school students. But thankfully, I think everyone's kind of gotten used to it. It's also, you know, showed us that, you know, we've always thought that we want to be the most accessible, but You know, maybe moving forward, this is also another forum that we could be accessible if folks can't physically be here and we can meet them there.
1: Have you noticed an increase in food insecurity in general? How has the community dealt with it?
3: Food insecurity has always been one of the the things that we we have to face um, as a campus. What was able to happen on campus this year is we've opened the Maverick Food Pantry and that happened right at the end of last fall semester. We were focusing on community resources for our students. And I know we have the campus kitchen, but it was also housed in the community. Now we have something that the university can, can hold for students and where students can go get fresh food, it's something that the institution has invested in. We're hoping to kind of counter that that issue moving forward.
0: Do you think the vaccine rollout has been available to your community? Early on in the Twin
3: Cities, we have a market called the Hmong Village. And, I, and I'm speaking for, for just the Hmong community because I'm more familiar with, with uh, the efforts that's been going on there. And they actually had volunteers who are certified to give vaccines who speak Hmong, you know, provide those for, for our elders. And, and anyone who was, was an elder can come in and get it. There have been community efforts, not just in the Hmong community, but in our different Asian ethnic populations too, making sure that everything has been accessible, especially to our elder population. Now that it's been open to younger folks at higher rates. I'm sure that, you know, the efforts were well worth it. And I hope that continues where people also feel safe to going to get the vaccine and that if they're there and they don't speak English or, or they don't feel safe, that there are folks there to, to help walk them through. Have you experienced more discrimination since the pandemic started? Overall, I would say that violence, xenophobia, hate crimes against Asian Americans has always been there. And it has definitely been heightened with our last administration because of the things that that our last president has said. And it's made folks feel okay to kind of act on it. Whereas before, there could have been incidents and we just never knew. Now we have social media that can amplify those cases. And I think in this past year, it has been so bad that um, there had to be a nonprofit to... to start tracking all the cases that's happened. And that's only if people are reporting. And so there's kind of a couple of tiers to, uh, to this issue. You know, we come as Asians, most of our upbringing, our culture is to respect authority, to kind of just do your own thing, don't, don't mind other people. And so if you get that kind of upbringing and cultural background, and then you get attacked, Most people are going to shrug it off or not report it. It was just something horrible that happened to me without understanding the systems that we live in, systems such as white supremacy, patriarchy, that reinforces these violent thoughts and behaviors. And we just think that it was something horrible that happened to me, but I'm not going to to do anything about it. And then also with just the stereotype. Now, with that cultural upbringing, right, there's the stereotype that, oh, Asians are mellow, they're not going to cause problems, or you can do what you want and they're not going to report it. And that's where our culture also, our cultures and beliefs also get distorted and used against us. And that's one of the reasons why there hasn't been much progress with, you know, any actions against, or even calling some of these incidents hate crimes. Until Atlanta, when six women had to die, eight eight women had to die, six of them being Asian American. And so it's, we have to understand it as coming from different points that have influenced each other, whether in a good way or in a bad way.
1: What can our listeners do to support communities of color?
3: I think it definitely starts with knowing who you are first. And admitting to to some of the things that that you yourself have done. You know, I'm not a person without prejudice or or without things that I've been socialized to believe too. But understanding that just because you've been socialized to believe that, you can unlearn it. You know, can can do great things. Knowing who you are and and you know how you show up in the world. And if your identities give you privilege, then you know use your privilege wisely, whether that be, you know, being an advocate, being an, an accomplice, being an ally, or just holding space for, for folks, because society doesn't treat us all the same. And we have to admit that to be able to move forward. And so I think it, it really starts with yourself. You know, I'm learning to be an advocate for, for other folks, too, because sometimes we share the same types of oppression, but we also have different histories and how society has treated us. That is something that we each can do is to learn, learn about ourselves so that we can show up for other folks and show up for ourselves.
1: Paku's advice at the end was a useful thing for us to consider. I like to think of myself as a progressive person, but it's important for me to reflect on the biases that I have that I don't consciously know that I'm expressing.
0: Coming from a place of privilege, it is important to listen and support those who need it. Exactly. We have seen how different communities have been impacted during the pandemic in regards to employment, financial assistance, education, and mutual aid.
1: And we also heard how racism has affected communities differently.
0: I found it really interesting how our two interviewees were both working towards making things better for people of color.
1: They were coming at it from two different angles, though. Anissa was challenging the system to do better from the outside, whereas Baku was working within a system trying to do her best to get students what they need.
0: We would like to give a big shout out to Anissa and Paku and thank them so much for their time.
1: Yes, thank you, Paku and Anissa, and thank you for listening to this episode of The Great Exposure. This episode of The Great Exposure is executive produced by Katie Gunnick and Justin Danielson and edited by Justin Danielson. The Great Exposure is produced by Nia Vang, Katie Gunnick, Jess Hartwell, Justin Danielson, Skylar Kaki, and Christine Samick. Original music composed by Jacob Ross.